I don't know about you, but I love happy endings. You can have a really a wonderful movie, but if it has a bad ending, a sad ending, I'm done. I don't want to see it. Don't recommend it. Puts me in a bad mood. I like happy endings. Um, Princess Bride, perhaps one of the best movies ever made. I'm getting some amens from some of y'all here. There's a particular part in the movie where the young grandson, played by Fred Savage, hears his grandfather read that Wesley's dead. Shocked, the story suddenly, it, 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 it takes a pause as the grandson looks up at his grandpa, played by Peter Falk, and says, Grandpa, Grandpa, wait, did Fezzik mean he's dead? He, did, he didn't mean, he was only faking, Right? What's happening in that movie is what's happening in this section of Scripture. What it, what's going on? The story wasn't supposed to end this way. It can't end this way. You see, something that each of us have really due to us, our first parents being in the garden, we have it in ourselves that we know this can't be the way it ends. It can't be. Somehow, they have to have lived happily ever after, correct? Well, sadly, no. Or, or just maybe ever after isn't what exactly we think of when we consider ever after. You see, many of us could wish that Nehemiah ended at Nehemiah 12 where the people are celebrating and there's a huge parade and they're back in the land with a temple and the people rebuilt and the wall is rebuilt and they all lived happily ever after. But then we get to Nehemiah 13. It's the last chapter. It's not just the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. It's actually the last chapter of the Old Testament. And some of you sharp kids are going, no, 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 Malachi is the last book. But I'm telling you, chronologically, Nehemiah 13 is the end. That's after this point, you've got what some people would call 400 silent years it wasn't that God was silent, but he wasn't giving any sort of divine word until the arrival of John the Baptist and then his son, Jesus Christ. You see, what's going on in chapter 13 of Nehemiah is after 12 years as governor, Nehemiah returns to King Artaxerxes in roughly the year 432 BC. You see, in the ancient Middle East, kings required servants to return to them periodically just to reaffirm their allegiance. And so the text will tell us that sometime later, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, uh, and there's problems. I mean, terrible problems. You see, chapter 12, the people rejoiced over these temple and the, and the people and the wall. They won the battle, and we find out in, in chapter 13, they are losing the war. Years later, all is not right in the land, and Nehemiah has to deal with it. Here's our outline, Derek Thomas uh, comprise this, and it's pretty good, so I used his. Uh, we'll see in chapter 13, verse 4 through 9, there's compromise with the world. There's compromise throughout the whole text, but in particular with the world here. In verse 10 through 14, we'll see carelessness. They are neglecting the Levites. In chapter 13, verse 15 through 22, we have commercialism. They are abusing the Sabbath like never before, perhaps, perhaps. 
And then verse 23 through 31, there's cohabitation, marrying unbelievers that we just read about. And we're gonna see in this chapter, in some sense, how does Nehemiah deal with them? How to handle sin in a congregation? Now, just to be clear, there's nuanced differences between Old Testament Israel and the time of our New Testament church. So we don't handle all these things the same. Uh, Galatians 6.1 will tell us, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That means you're a, you're a growing Christian. You should restore this person with gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So be careful, lest you so boldly confront and think that you yourself could not fall into that sin or perhaps the sin of pride. But then you also have other passages of the New Testament that speak with dealing with sin in a congregation. And quite honestly, it sounds like a more ruthless approach. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, uh, they're dealing with the sin of a man who's having uh, relations, immorality with his stepmother. And the Corinthians haven't dealt with that in the church. They're just not dealing with it. And so chapter 5, verse 5, Paul will say, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That sounds a little tougher than Galatians 6.1. But we find out in the New Testament, you deal with it differently, basing upon the person's repentance. Are they repentant? Are they willing to change by God's grace? Are they steadfast and hard-hearted in their sin? You deal with it very differently. So the motto of the Reformation Church is still the motto of Grace Church. Well, not our only motto, but this is the motto for all Protestant churches. It's semper, semper reformida, which means always reforming. What does the word reform mean? Change. We're changing always by the Holy Spirit working through us, in us, in spite of us. This is the way God works. And we're gonna see some tough things today. And what we're gonna see is that they didn't all live happily ever after. But you can. We'll hold that to the end. Verse one, this is the word of God. And on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. What is this about? Well, Ammonites and Moabites were not allowed into the congregation of Israel. Uh, reason why, well, there's lots, but one of them in particular, the descendants of lots, uh, of the person Lot, he had immorality with his two daughters, and they not only were disobedient to the Lord, but they attacked Israel. Um, the king of Moab hired Balaam to curse Israel. And the Ammonites as well went up against them. And so God said, nope, they can't come in. And what, did, what happens? As soon as the people heard the law, they let them go, which, which was the right thing to do. Hebrews 4.12, it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. When the word of God, they heard it, it pierced their heart symbolically. And they thought, we have to change. We cannot allow this. Now, some of you really sharp cookies in the room are starting to go, wait a second. The Mosaic law excluded all foreigners 
not Israelites, from the restoration community. In particular, Moabites and Ammonites here. But what about Ruth? Yeah. Ruth, she was a Moabite. She became part of the community. There's other examples, but for Ruth, let me give you a couple, a few options. I don't know which one is right. I don't think the first one is right, but two or three may be right. Here it is. It could be the Israelites, just number one, did not enforce the law regarding Ruth. They should have not let her into the covenant community. That doesn't square well with me because Ruth is actually in the line of the Messiah, as well as Rahab, who was a Canaanite woman. It could be the second reason why Ruth was allowed in is the use of the Hebrew masculine noun. When it says in verse one that no Ammonite or Moabite, sadly, English doesn't typically have, I don't think we ever have masculine and feminine words, but this is masculine terminology when it's referring to the Ammonites and the Moabites. So the use of the Hebrew masculine noun, perhaps only males were excluded. Well, maybe, but what we're gonna see in just a moment is these Israelite men were bringing in foreign women. So that may not be correct. Maybe it's number three. Unbelieving immigrants from these nations were denied full rights. Did you catch the adjective? Unbelieving. Ruth believed, and God gave her the grace to come into the community. And not only is she the, um, well, let's see, great, great, go on grandmother of Jesus, but also of King David as well. Continuing on, let's take a look now where they've compromised. Verse four through nine. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. <laughs> Don't forget that. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king... And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. What is going on here? Eliashib seems to be the high priest. And get this, he's a close relative of Tobiah. Uh, Tobiah, if you remember, he is the Jewish Ammonite leader who mocks Nehemiah. He's an enemy of God, an enemy of God's people. And notice where he's living. He's living in God's house. Um, how did this happen? Well, he... <sighs> Eliashib has decided to convert a temple room into an apartment. That seems like a good idea. It's a terrible idea because Tobiah is like a cancer in the body and it has to be removed. And Nehemiah, note this, he notes the problem, he gets upset, he takes all of his stuff and he throws it out on the lawn. And some of you think, I think I've seen that in a movie or perhaps even personally, I hope you haven't. However, he dedicates, he eventually, he goes back and he clears it out and he dedicates this to the Lord. So what does he do? He throws stuff out of the temple. Hmm, who else acts like Nehemiah? 
Jesus Christ in the temple. It's, it's interesting. One of the last acts of the Old Testament is this sort of cleansing of part of the temple. 400 plus years later, it's one of the first acts in the book of John chapter two. Why does Jesus do that? Why does Nehemiah do that? Well, the Bible tells us, zeal for your house will consume me, it says in John two. You see, Nehemiah in some ways is a picture of Jesus Christ. It's not just the building to keep in mind, it's the people of God. And Nehemiah knows that if we have a kind of a compartmentalized here for Tobiah, within the house of God, this particular area, you know, that no one needs to look at, it won't affect anybody. No, Nehemiah knows better. And by the way, you and I should know better if we have our particular own little sins within the house of God that no one's really looking at. Just move on. Pay no attention here. You see, God knows how much it will destroy us and it will destroy others as well. Some of you in this room, and I'm gonna look up here, you know I'm referring to you. Either in the past or maybe even the present. Beware, no one sins alone. See, Nehemiah did not see holiness as negotiable. I think perhaps because we live under grace that we're like, holiness is take it or leave it. I'm saved by Jesus, I'm saved by grace. No, holiness is not negotiable. First Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy, is what God says. Set apart for the Lord in his service. So the question we should ask ourselves, why are we not more angry with a sin in our nation, in our church, dare I say it, in ourselves? Why are we not more angry about that? I mean, a righteous anger, not a sort of, you know, teapot going crazy on a winter day. But no, we're just like, ugh, I'm so frustrated with me. And some of us would might say, well, I'm not really bothered by it because I'm just, I'm, I'm a merciful person and we should have mercy. Au contraire. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. It's not that most people are merciful. Most people just don't care about righteousness. You see, perhaps the reason it doesn't bother you is not because you're merciful at all. You just don't give a rip about what God wants because you're saved. What? Eliashib, Paul told Timothy about those who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. That means they, they say they're believers, but they don't act like it. Paul will say, avoid such men as these. 2 Timothy 3, 5, get away. Not talking about a person that is, that is an unbeliever. I'm talking about a person that claims to be a believer and lives like an unbeliever. Just get away from them. They're gonna hurt you. Verse 10 through 14, we'll see not only compromise, but carelessness. They have been neglecting the Levites. And I also found, verse 10, that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O Lord, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his 
service. Question, how were they careless? What had they done wrong? They had not provided for the Levites. You see the way it worked in the Old Testament, you would give tithes to the temple so the Levites could live on that. Now the tithes weren't, many times there was money, it was food, it was oil, it was things that they could use. Uh, And the people, sadly, did not do this. And so what's happening with the Levites? They're becoming full-time farmers. Nothing wrong with being a full-time farmer. There's integrity in that. But Levites, what were they charged with doing? Teaching the people. Living in 48 cities throughout ancient Israel. uh, All spread throughout so that they could teach the people of God. You know, it's interesting, Malachi, who is prophesying at the same time Nehemiah is dealing with this, he says this in chapter three, verse eight through eight and nine. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Once again, the Levites were supported by the other tribes and they've stopped giving And so the Levites had to go out into the fields in in order to feed their families. And did you catch the last verse, what Nehemiah does, verse 14? He prays. And he prays for himself. And you might go, well, that's kind of, oh, I don't know, selfish, thinking of himself. No, I don't think so. I think when he prays, remember me, O God, there's a couple of points I think you want to consider. Number one, He wants to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the highest ambition that you and I could hear from our Lord. And every time that Nehemiah praises, he's praying it in the midst of, it's taking a lot of courage for him to do what he's doing. And it's also, catch this, going against the prevailing opinions of the day. Christian, when you stand up against the prevailing opinions of the day, does the world tend to go, Look at that guy, look at that taking stands for what they believe in. No, you're called a hater. You're called a person that's perhaps even a Pharisee. Now be careful that you're not being a Pharisee. You're following the scriptures. But you're not loved by the world. And this is what happens with Nehemiah. He prays, Lord, remember me. And another aspect of remember me is this. When we call the Lord to remember me, it's not just a call, not just a recall to mind, but for you to take action, Lord. We talked about this in Ezra. In Genesis 8:1, and the Lord remembered Noah. This is after the flood. Had God forgotten about Noah throughout all the storms? Was he like, oh, oh, we gotta take care of that guy. He's the righteous one. No. He remembers, he takes action. The winds blow. The water goes down and they're able to get back out. Uh, Children of Israel, as they're weeping down in uh, slavery in Egypt, God remembers them. He takes action. And that's what Nehemiah would want God to do. Verse 15 through 22, we have commercialism. They are abusing the Sabbath. One thing I'll mention as well. Is it wrong to say to the Lord, would you remember me today? Well, if it's in scripture, of course it's not wrong. And remember, we're not saying that God has forgotten. God can't forget anything. He chooses not to remember the sins of his people. He chooses not to, so he doesn't. But when we're calling out, Lord, remember me, I've been done wrong. 
I've been mistreated. This is so wrong. Remember me. We're, at, we're calling him to act in justice and in mercy for us as well. Continuing on, we've got commercialism. They're abusing the Sabbath, verse 15 through 22. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians, who are also their Gentiles, they're living in the city and brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. The word profane, it means to treat as a sacred thing as common. Uh, uh, The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. We could debate Sabbatarianism, but suffice it to say this, is it seems like Sabbath, even God rested on the seventh day. God can't be tired. Um, So it was a day in the Old Testament to rest, to trust the Lord. And yet what are they doing? Selling foreigners, or rather the foreigners are selling items. Israel is buying, they're transporting goods. Another day, another dollar. No, no. Uh, The prophet Amos dealt with this hundreds of years before the fall of Jerusalem. Part of the reason why Jerusalem fell was they were discounting the Sabbath as well as many other idolatrous things. You see, Nehemiah knew the word of God. And he says, the reason why we are in this mess in the first place is because we've sinned against God. And so to put it like this, the problem with Tobiah and putting him in that little compartment, that little apartment in temple, is Nehemiah says we have to protect our holy place. And really to holy, set apart people of God we have to protect. Here, he's saying we need to protect holy time. The Sabbath in the Old Testament, and I think there are some applications for the New Testament, We need to be careful as Americans. We are way too easily compromised in the area of time. I think it's because we have so much freedom. We can do whatever we want to do. A lot of other countries, you cannot do that. Um, To give yourself this analogy, what if you were told today you have one week to live? Uh, You went into a doctor, you weren't feeling so well, and the doc says, well, um, I've got some bad news. There's something wrong with your heart and uh, you have this disease and you can't, there's no cure for it. You have one week to live. Literally November 19th, uh, best, best case scenario will be on your epitaph. You've got one week. Um, pack up your things. There's nothing you can do. Even if the heart stops, we can't start it back again. There's, no, there's nothing we can do. Question, if you knew you had one week left to live, would you live any differently today? You know what's scary about that scenario? Virtually none of us will be given a week's warning. None of us. And we live live like we've got years, decades on to go. 
You see, we need to be careful with our time. Set apart qualified time with the Lord, not as a way to please him. You're pleased. You're pleasing to the Father due to the Son, Jesus Christ. But we just need to sometimes, if you will, sometimes make unpopular decisions. Are you willing to make unpopular decisions that are nevertheless good for people? This is what Nehemiah is doing this whole time. No one agrees with Nehemiah what he's doing. And yet, this is what wise parents do, I think. I mean, parents, tell me that you love your kids enough to discipline them. Please tell me, because that's the phrase used. Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And not just applying the rod, but directing them in wise living. What I'm asking you is the same thing that Nehemiah had to ask himself. Am I willing to risk being misunderstood and even disliked in order to obey the word of God? There's many applications for that. I mean, parents, just to, just to fiddle with you for a moment, um, do, you, do, you, do you hand your child an iPad and say, say, here, have a good time with it? Like, do you do that with a grenade? Here, why don't you just fiddle with that thing? I mean, I hope you put things in place. I hope you actually tell them, hey, you need to go outside and play. That's enough. Because you know that, does it say that in the Bible? No, but it does say that we are, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we know sitting in a, one location, looking at a screen is actually not good for the body. You don't need science to prove this. You just know this inherently. Do you ever look at your child perhaps and say, you can't do it all? Maybe they're very gifted in certain areas and you just go, we're gonna have to choose. I'm gonna have to be, if you will, the bad guy. I'm gonna have to risk making unpopular decisions in order to be the parent I should be. I joke about this. Courtney and I would, she would ever come to me and she would say, Daddy, I'm bored. That's, a, that's never a good statement because I'd say, well, let's go get you something to do because she knows if she came to me bored, she would be chored, amen? <laughs> she's, she's giving me evil eye here. I'll continue on. I hope you look at your kids from time to time and say, I love you too much and you are not wearing that. Be it whatever gender, guy or girl, I hope you're being wise as parents. I can't tell you the number of parents that want to be their kid's best friend. I don't see that in scripture anywhere. Can't just pick on parents. We should go into husbands. Husbands, are you shepherding your wife and children in the word of God in prayer? And this is convicting. Are you doing this? And there's no format perfect, but are you trying? Are you putting forth effort? You love them enough. You know that there's something to Ephesians 5, the washing your wife with the word of God. It's important with your entire family as well. You're supposed to shepherd your kiddos. Kids, do you love your friends enough to take a stand against peer pressure? Do you love your friends enough? Um, I'll never forget being at a party when I was in 10th grade and they were, I just wanted to be accepted and loved and Ultimately, I was on the throne of my life when you just want to be accepted and loved by your friends. And I'll never forget, they were about to start a movie. It was a 
bad movie, and I knew it at the time, and I was like, oh, everybody, come sit down. And I come sit down, and I'm going, what am I doing? I'll never forget, there was a guy right to my left. I can see him right now, and his name was Robert. And he wasn't our grade. He was a year above. He was dating one of the girls in our class. And he goes, I've heard of this movie. I'm out of here. And he just, as he starts to walk away, people are like, dude, what's, the, what's your deal? You're being a legalist. And I respected him so much, and he just said, nah, I'm out. And he just walked in the other room and hung out and, you know, I don't know, didn't do much of anything. And I wanted so badly to walk away with him, but I didn't. I sat still and I'm like, I have to be accepted. I have to be loved. It's ridiculous. By the way, I'm looking around and I see some kids that are perhaps in junior high or high school and I have to ask, why are you need to join us for the youth discipleship class? Uh, Stephen Drake had a great quote this morning. Do we, uh, do we challenge our friends' sinfulness? Do we love them enough to do that? He did a great job this morning. Clayton Thompson does a great job teaching. If you don't have your kids in the youth group on Sunday morning, you need to. It's excellent teaching. That's a side note. But the point is, are you willing to make unpopular decisions? Once again, be careful you're not being the legalist. Make sure you're not being the overbearing dad or parent or or friend and trying to force your convictions that are really not in the Bible. But are we willing to do that? That's ultimately what Nehemiah is doing this whole time. He's loving his brothers. Verse 19 through 22, and as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem um, for the Sabbath, I commanded that the doctors, or rather doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. (laughs) From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Here's what Nehemiah does. He locks doors, puts out guards, warns them. I love what he says. I'm gonna lay hands on you. I've been told that before. I bet some of you have as well. Um, They use that phrase as well in the Hebrew. Notice from this time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. At this point, they go, I'm not playing with this one. You see, what we find out is Nehemiah loves people enough, he's gonna protect them. I'm thankful for the veterans in the room that have done that for years. But it's not just ending with our military forces. We are all called to this, are we not? You see, you see Nehemiah is not just keeping the law, he's answering the question of Genesis 4.9. Am I my brother's keeper? And Nehemiah goes, you betcha I am. Whereas Cain is meaning it as a mocking sense to God. My brother keeps the sheep. Am I now keeping him? And God could have just as said just as well, you betcha you are. And Nehemiah is doing this. Nehemiah is not called to do this, is he? Yes, we're all called to do this. So he prays again, have favor on me according to your said. In the Hebrew, according to your steadfast love, Father, you and I are in covenant with one another. Remember me. 
Verse 23 through 31, we read this earlier, the cohabitation of marrying unbelievers. Keep in mind, mixed marriages has nothing to do with race or ethnicity. That's stupidity. What the Bible refers to as mixed marriages are believers and unbelievers. Ezra had dealt with this problem in chapter 9 and 10 of Ezra. They remember they're standing outside the pouring rain, they're repentant, but they've got all these mixed marriages everywhere. That must mean that it is really a big temptation, not only to the Jews, but to us to engage in immorality, sexual immorality. You think that's a 21st century phenomenon? No. In those days, verse 23, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. What's interesting is the person that wrote uh, this uh, was be the Holy Spirit, but in the pen of the writer, in verse 23, he doesn't say the Jews who married. He says the Jews who caused to settle with the women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Why does he say that word? Does it mean they really didn't marry them? No, it really does mean they married them. But I think the writer's saying is this is so repugnant. These are not legitimate marriages. That's how bad it is. And so he's not even going to call it that. And what's so bad is the kids could not even speak Hebrew. You know what that means? They can't read the Bible, which was written in Hebrew. And let me tell you what that means. Marrying an unbeliever, it doesn't just affect you. People always think, well, I can live with it. It's not about you all the time. It's your kids. It's your kids. It can destroy your kids. Aristotle Greek philosopher says, give me a child until he is seven and I will show you the man. That's how much the early years of raising have an effect. Malachi 2 tells us some of these Jews were divorcing their Jewish wives in order to marry these foreign unbelieving women. So what is so interesting, the different old patterns or the way that leadership styles of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, when he hears about it, he pulls out his hair. Nehemiah, when he hears about it, he pulls out their hair. <laughs> Woo! Talk about taking the bull by the horns. So he, it says he beat them and he plucked out their hair. Now, people go, how bizarre is that? No, you should note that this happened to our, to our Savior, Jesus Christ is part of the punishment. Isaiah 50, verse six, they plucked out his hair, uh, some out of his beard. They beat him. But note this also, it was the official punishment of that time period. There's documented evidence that two men in particular who agreed to build on a plot of land, according to the contract, reads this. If they fail to complete the work on time, they shall be beaten a hundred times, perhaps with a rod. Their beards and hair of their head shall be plucked out and they shall be kept in the workhouse. So it's not actually uh, above crazy here. And notice he curses them. Now, some of this people at this point go, Nehemiah's off the rails. No, stay with me here. He, it doesn't say he cussed them out to use our vernacular today. It means he cursed them. So what it would be, it'd be something to this effect. Number 6, 24 through 26, the priestly blessing. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And what Nehemiah does is something to the effect, may the Lord curse you and not keep you. May the Lord's face never shine upon you. See what I'm saying? He flipped the blessing. I'm not saying that's the exact words he used, but that was the cursing he, he gave them, is the Lord curse you for what you are doing. You know better. And then he makes them swear. It makes them swear, like if you will, on a Bible, they cannot marry their children to the Jewish kids. And they cannot take any more foreign wives. So that's how serious it is at the time of the Old Testament. But remember, as, as a way to remember this, the Messiah is coming through the Gentile line? No, the Jewish line. You had to be very careful. Do not intermarry your kids with foreigners, especially these unbelieving foreigners. For us in the New Testament church, we would say you can marry any tribe, tongue, people, or nation, but you better make sure that they are in Christ. And don't just tell me, well, they believe in God, and I think they're getting close. No, they need to be born again. So we see in verse 8, 21 and 25, Nehemiah is angry. He's dealing with sin. Verse 26 through 29, he says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Let me just lay my card out there, can I? The big card. Solomon, to me, is the biggest enigma in the Bible. Uh, when he was born, God even gave him a special name. Uh, Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord, as to show David this is the one. He really was the wisest man in the world. And what's so shocking is the wisest man in the world becomes a fool because he doesn't want to obey the word of God. And he marries unbelieving women. And what Nehemiah is saying, do you think that somehow you're better than him? And I would look at believers and say, be careful. Some of us perhaps believe psychologists or, or scientists over what the Bible clearly says. And we're nothing more than little fools at that point because we would believe something man comes up with and you go, well, yeah, that's been tested. I don't care, it's been tested. The word of God is tested. Silver and gold, it's more precious than that. So um, these priests, keep in mind, he, he chases who away? He chases the grandson of the high priest away. Even the grandson of the high priest is marrying foreign women, unbelievers. And so for the first time, he doesn't say, remember me. He says, remember them, oh God. That means you discipline, you punish them. And finally, the last two verses of the, New, of the Old Testament are these. Thus I cleanse from them from everything foreign and I establish the duties of the priest and Levites each in his work and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, oh God, for my good. Does that sound like happily ever after to you? You see, 
Just because Nehemiah's actions are recorded does not make him 100% righteous in all his actions. There's some debate on that. And yet I will tell you, the scriptures do commend him as a godly servant. I mean, feet of clay included. And what we'll see is that the Levites who are supposed to purify the layman, now you have a layman, a purifying professional ministers. It's flipped. So what we're going to find out as we conclude, I decided not to do a whole sermon on just pulling Ezra and Nehemiah together. I just decided to give you just some applications at the end of this book. Um, Nehemiah is the last of the recorded information about the Jewish nation until the New Testament and the arrival of John the Baptist and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I'd like to conclude with six truths about Ezra and Nehemiah, last chapter of the Old Testament. Uh, Tommy Nelson at Denton Bible Church did such a good job on this. I, I borrowed heavily after him. Number one, sin starts small, but it grows quickly. Galatians 5, 9, fill in the blank, congregation. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Number two, as the leaders fall into sin, so the people. Now be careful, we all sin. I'm talking about the sort of unrepentant, intentional I ain't going to stop sin. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may st- the rest may stand in fear. God forbid, but if one of the elders decided to go into some really bad things, we got to deal with it publicly. And that's what the Bible says. So what we have here, we have the high priest, the grandson, the Levites, the nobles, the dads and moms are all falling into these patterns. And now the kids can't even speak Hebrew. They can't even read Hebrew. So as the leaders fall, so the people. Number three, sinful times demand strong men and women that are not afraid to take their stand. I just blunt with you. I think most of us are just lily-livered. We can, be, we can somehow work our way out of confronting things and we say, well, we're just waiting. I'm waiting on the Lord. Really? The Bible's very clear what you should do here. Yes, but, but I'm waiting. And we're praying. That one is, it kind of covers a little bit more. And we should wait on the Lord and we should pray. But the point of it is, is when Peter started to pull back from the Jews and rather pull back from the Gentiles and only eat with the Jews, what does Paul do? He confronts him in front of everybody. Why? Because public sins you have to confront publicly because he loves Peter and he loves the people as well. Number four, standing against sin has future rewards, but the rewards may not be today. I wish I had rewritten that. I wish I had rewritten the rewards will probably not be today. Oftentimes doing the right thing doesn't seem to pay off at all, actually. But the Bible encourages us, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come from God. You see, we we do these things not based upon immediate rewards, but upon glorifying the Lord and, and waiting for his reward. Number five, sin mutates from one generation to the next. I've mentioned this before, but the Jews never go back to Canaanite idolatry, ever. Instead, by the time of Christ, they fall into the idolatry of self-righteousness. It just mutates. That's all it does. Some of us think we're repenting. Actually, what we're doing is just giving up that sin because it hurts me so much. And instead, I've got a new friend right here. 
just mutates. And number six, the law cannot remedy sin. Boy, talk about a bad ending to a sermon. The law can't do anything. As a matter of fact, we see the very first priest fails, named Aaron. He makes a golden calf. And the last priest of the Old Testament fails, named Eliashib. And he's at the wedding of his grandson as he's going off to marry a pagan. But the story was not supposed to end this way, was it? Well, in some sense it was. Genesis 2.17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So they don't live all happily ever after? No, they don't. But by God's grace, some of you today can live happily ever after. And I would say the same thing that George Whitfield would ask this woman or would tell this woman when she said, why do you always say you must be born again? And he said, because you must be born again. This is a gift of God. Um, Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. That means I will put in that which is dead and I'm gonna put in something that's alive and growing and that is the spirit of God. If you're an unbeliever today, if you've never fully realized this then you need to see this, the Israelites were called to obey God's word for a thousand years and they couldn't do it. They needed a true Israelite, the last high priest that would not sacrifice an animal. He would sacrifice himself on the cross. You see, the problem with you and I is we are big sinners and you can never pay for your sin. That's why people go to hell for eternity. One of the reasons is they can never pay. That's why it never stops. The wages of sin is death and it's not just physical death because we all die. It's, it's death and hell for eternity. But God loved us so much, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life you and I can never live. And then gave himself up to die on the cross. Three days later, God raises him from the dead as if to show the entire world there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. So my encouragement to him, to you today would be this. The only thing you can bring to Jesus today is your sin. You can pay for nothing. Instead, come to the living waters he can give you life eternal. Trust in him alone for your salvation and he will be your great shepherd. We'll be studying that great shepherd in a couple of weeks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for the study of Ezra and Nehemiah, Lord. We give you thanks for the opportunity to study it. Lord, help us that we would um, seek first your kingdom. I pray for anybody who has not yet known Jesus. Would you save them today? Would you grant them salvation, faith and repentance? They would... They would come to their knees before God. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us to live lives that we'd be willing to take strong stands for Jesus Christ, doing it in love in the age of the New Testament, doing it in truth as well. In your son's name we pray it, amen.